Welcome to Mind the Shift. My name is Anders Bolling. Today we will discuss something that might seem uh, like a fringe topic, but if that's the case, you might say that everybody who's walking around on this earth with a body is a fringe topic, because we're going to talk about uh, body heat. Um, one might think that everything has been said in science about that particular subject, but it turns out, no, it hasn't. Um, I know that my guest today has also uh, other bold and unconventional ideas aside from body heat. Uh, so um, we will hopefully have time to touch on those also. Welcome, Paul Scanlon. And is, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. <laughs> Thanks for making time to speak with me today. It's I my pleasure. That. And you're joining us from London, right? That's right. I grew up in Australia, yeah. uh, but for about the last 20 years, I've been living in London. And uh, yeah, there are good things about both countries. Uh, and yeah, so it's, I miss Australia a bit, but um, it's great to be living in the yeah, UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of Australians live in England, I guess. So you're not, you're not the it's, only one. Yeah, it's almost a rite of passage. Um, for example, my, my parents came to live in the UK just for a bit um, when... Um, and so I happened to be born in the UK. Mm. They went back to Australia. I grew up there. But it just means that I was able to come back to the UK quite easily. And next thing you know, you blink and two decades have passed. And yeah, I know. Yes. Well, your accent isn't that very Australian, actually. I would say it's it sounds more British, but uh, maybe it's... it's not, I've, not I've, expert. Well, yeah, I've always been fairly softly spoken, I think. And yeah. uh, so people even accuse me... Of, of being a Kiwi at some stage in New okay. Zealand. No, no offense to Kiwis or to Australians. Uh, but um, maybe if I've had a bit to drink or something like that, or, or I've been watching a lot of Australian TV, I okay. might lapse. If there are any key words that um, go over the top of your head, just let me know and I'll try and put them back into proper okay. English. Okay. Wonderful. So, Paul, I, I've just read your brief but immensely interesting and funny book, which oh, fun, is called fun, funny in parts and, in and the, parts, the, yes. the humor will appeal to different people. That's but, true. Um, Very but I think kind of humor, but it's a, uh, yeah, a lot of play on words and things like that. I think if you're reading a book about body heat and worried about the humor, you, you, you're not really reading the right book. If you're looking for high grade champagne quality humor, then try something else. But yes, uh -huh. I, I tried to introduce a bit of levity to, um, to, to keep people away. And you do, you manage to do that, I think. But I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, people who are very into them, very serious people might not appreciate all <laughs> the humor that you display in here. But anyway, it looks like this uh, for the uh, YouTube audience, the body heat fiasco, solving a mystery in science. And it's, um, it, it challenges the standard model of how body heat is generated. Uh, this, to spoil the, th the thrill, it is the squeezing of air in the lungs that does the trick. Exactly. And Throughout the respiratory system. Exactly. Might, a few listeners might um, um, maybe <laughs> might beg to differ. that jaws when they heard that, but, but stay calm because Paul will explain everything. When I read this book, I thought that either this man is uh, completely out to lunch in this matter or he's a yeah. genius because it's a little bit diff difficult to think that it's some something in between there, don't you think yourself? Oh, I, I really appreciate you saying that and for, for humoring me. If in the fullness of time, it turns out that uh, it's, a, it's a, um, 
anyway, I, I wouldn't be putting it out there if I didn't have full confidence in it. But I, I take the point that it's quite at odds with what the mainstream view is at the moment. And for good reason, people want to know that if something's quite different, why should we believe that? Why shouldn't we just fall back to, to what professors and teachers and textbooks have been telling us for um, more than 100 years? Yeah. But yeah, we'll, of course, delve into the, the details of, of, of your theory or what you've found and also what the standard model is. But so it is controversial. Uh, I mean, I'm a layman, layman here. So I, to me, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying there. But I'm, on the other hand, I don't know anything about <laughs> the standard textbook model of body heat. Uh, anyway, so but what, what is it? Why did you write this book and what, I mean, where does this interest from, from the mechanics, the physics of, of the body come from? So in short, who are you? <laughs> yeah, how, did, good, how, how did all this begin? Good question. Um, I studied science at university and I've always been interested in science, different aspects of it. For example, as a child growing up, I caught lots of lizards and frogs and was really into getting out and about in nature and, and trying to understand uh, more about reptiles and amphibians. Other interest in physiology came from being a distance runner and also going to the gym. Hard to believe, but I used to go to the gym quite heavily and, and really appreciated uh, doing that. But um, particularly having studied science at school and at university, I was always grounded very much in the sort of Western science, Western medicine. Um, this is the way it is. It's in the textbooks. There are uh, specific laws involved here. People smarter than uh, me have, um, have sorted these things out. So read the textbook. That's, that's the way it is. Um, but uh, when I started to find that uh, life was perhaps at odds with what, what's in the textbook, that's when I started to open my mind and to um, investigate and explore and... Uh, and that came up for me first in relation to my eyes and my vision. So that was a sort of gateway into mm -hmm. uh, trying to understand more and having a, taking a wider view and looking what's at what's in the fringes, uh, because I think all progress is likely to be made at the fringes. And you can't adopt everything that's fringe, but there's no harm in considering it. Well, I agree on that, of course. So, so vision was was your first. Uh, interest when it comes to the body exactly i was um a, a couple of years after school a good friend of mine said to me scan my my nickname said scan you were the squarest guy in school and I, that was news to me i knew i was hard working <laughs> and i'd done well and what was worse was there was a, a girl that we knew from school also with us on, on that occasion she said yeah that's right it's just like oh no i didn't believe i so I worked really hard at school and you'd, you'd expect um, the guy who's working really hard to be the one who ends up with glasses um, and sort of really bookish. Um, but I, I was physically active as well and um, played some Australian rules football and was into cross-country running and everything was going fine until in year 12, uh, my eyesight started going south. Mm. I needed to sit in the front row in the chemistry class and I was peering and looking uh, and eventually ended up at an optometrist's office and he tested my eyes and the news was, yes, you're short-sighted, 
um, you're going to need to wear these glasses. And so for the next 10 years, I wore glasses and contact lenses. And um, I moved to, during that time, I moved to, to, from Canberra to Sydney. So I was in a new city. I didn't know too many people there. And uh, I was living opposite the library. And I happened to read, I read a short part of a book called Posture Makes Perfect. It was a book written by a Kiwi GP and New Zealand GP Mm -hmm. who was just trying to hammer home the message that posture is important. And he spent about a couple of paragraphs just saying, by the way, the the eyesight that he has is great because he looks out the window into the distance and here are two or three eye exercises. So I thought, wow, maybe my eyesight's going south and getting worse. Maybe I could try doing eye exercises because I was going to the gym at the time and being very physically fit and active. Everything was going well except for my eyes. So um, what I did was I I started looking around on the internet, which was fairly new in those days, for for some more information and also to buy um, an eye exercise kit. What is that? Well, uh, at, at the time, there were two, two groups in America that were selling eye exercise kits. And I thought, which one should I go with? Which would, uh, there was, a, uh, I think, a video and a book. And it was all about, learn about eye exercises, do this, improve your vision, which sounded like a good idea to me. Um, but it was quite, quite contrary to what optometrists and visual professionals would say. They'd say, no, you can't make any improvement. But, but I knew just from having done a couple of exercises, having read those few paragraphs in the book, Posture Makes Perfect, I, I knew, hang on, my vision is getting slightly better. I can tell. So, so I knew that there was a, a, a difference or a delta between what the mainstream view was and what I could actually achieve. So why not try and see how well I could go with my eye, eye exercises? Yeah. Thought, thought about it for a while, went back to the internet and couldn't decide which of the eye exercises to go for. When I went back to the internet, one of them had been shut down. So that made the, made the choice for me. I ordered the eye exercise kit. Uh, it arrived at work, uh, which was quite good just before a holiday. Anyway, I spent um, some time doing these eye exercises. Okay. And what happened? Well, I... I um, I called my optometrist back in Canberra and he was very good with me. I said, look, I'm like, I'm about to start some eye exercises and I expected him to maybe not be very appreciative of that. But what he said was he put me in contact with someone in Sydney. He said, this chap might be interested. So I actually had an optometrist there who was uh, not only an optometrist, but also teaching at the university. And he said, sure, I'll, I'm, I'll, test your eyes come in every so often so we watched as my eye the prescription required to see 2020 for me improved from minus three or minus 3.25 i improved it gradually so i could see 2020 with minus two so Mm -hmm. i'd I'd improved um depending on how you measure it by about a a third um and so I, tend, I started to plateau at that stage and um, I was able to, uh, I, I then moved to the UK 
and I was able to keep doing eye exercises, but also explore some other things because eye exercises are more like there are muscles in your eyes and around your eyes and varying views about um, the extent to which they affect your vision. The, the, the prevailing, the dominant view is, yes, you've got muscles on the outside and they all they do is help swivel the eye from side to side and up and down. And the only muscle to do with vis clear vision is this tiny little one inside the, the eye, which, which affects how tight or loose the, the lens is. So it mm -hmm. changes the shape of the lens. Yeah. Uh, that's the only one that's important for clarity of vision and you cannot control that. So don't even think about eye exercises. But mm -hmm. I, I knew there was more to it than that. I so, think there is a commonality between this and, and, and body heat because uh, I, as far as I understand you, we spoke, we chatted a few weeks ago, first time and uh, got to know each other. And you mentioned that pressure has something to do with it, it which it has with body heat as well, which is interesting. Exactly. So I, I went to, I, I, by this stage, I've moved to the UK. I was working in a new job with a new, in a new city. So I could walk around without being able to see particularly well, without worrying about upsetting friends and people I knew. I could sort of walk around and concentrate on my eyes and improving my eyes um, most, most of my waking hours. Um, and I gradually came to understand the importance of that, that, that breathing is very important. That first came to me. Um, I, I first started reading a lot about vision, about breathing um, in connection with hay fever because my hay fever was starting to get worse. And there's, there's a, a there's what's called Bateko breathing, which has to do with a Russian professor who was studying to become a doctor. And he walked into um, the waiting room and he looked around at everyone and he said, oh, well, you've obviously got a breathing issue. Oh, you've, you've, got, a, you've got a breathing issue. And he, worked, he, he noticed that everyone seemed to have not to be breathing as well as they could. And my perspective is that breathing is always the bridesmaid and never the bride. It's mm -hmm. always a case of, yeah, breathing. Okay, there are lots of symptoms of this thing and one of them is breathing as opposed to breathing being the main game. And when that's not right, a myriad of other things flow from that. Okay, yeah. So with Bateco, that's just all about slowing your breathing down mm. and hey, presto, a lot of these things resolve. Yeah. And if you look back in history... The, uh, it's always been a case of slow, deep breathing is what is prescribed by people who do, say, yoga and tai chi. These practices going back thousands of oh, years. Oh, yeah, yeah, ancient traditions all speak about breathing, more or less. I mean, it's, it's mentioned in, in the, in the Christ, Christian tradition, in Judaism, everywhere. Posture um, and breathing. Exactly. So um, if it was all just about oxygen then you'd, you'd think breathing rapidly in and out in and out in and out would be great to maximize the oxygen um, but unfortunately schoolboy understanding is oxygen good carbon dioxide bad but in actual fact oxygen is important and carbon dioxide is important yeah so if you breathe out all your carbon dioxide then uh, you have just as much trouble as if you have breathed out all your, your oxygen mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, the, the, 
there's something called the bore effect, which sounds like what I might be having now on, on you and your audience. B-O-H-R, <laughs> as in Niels Bohr. Okay. And one way of looking at that is in the body, there's the hemoglobin molecule and most, most of the oxygen that's carried around your body is attached to the hemoglobin molecule. And that's sticky. And the, the red blood cells sort of carry that to the, the lungs and there the oxygen attaches to the hemoglobin molecule and it's stuck to the hemoglobin molecule and it travels around the body in the bloodstream. Hmm. And then just say um, you've used your hand like that, you used your muscles and you've got some sort of carbon dioxide byproducts there. The hemoglobin molecule transports the oxygen from your lungs attached, attached to the hemoglobin molecule, gets to where um, the work's been done and in the presence of the carbon dioxide, the oxygen detaches and the, heme, heme, and the carbon dioxide sticks to the hemoglobin and is carried to the lungs where the carbon dioxide detaches and more oxygen can attach. The problem arises because if you breathe out all of your carbon dioxide, then the oxygen will stick to the hemoglobin molecule, but it won't detach. It won't come unstuck. So you can have all the oxygen in the world that you want, but if you've breathed out all your carbon dioxide, the oxygen will just stay stuck to the hemoglobin molecule. Hmm. But everyone is of the opinion that, oh, oxygen, more oxygen, more oxygen, more oxygen. But low, slow, deep breathing we control the level of carbon dioxide. We don't have too much. You don't have too little. That's, uh, that's the key to things working the way they should. Yeah. It seems that so many good things come from breathing properly and correctly yeah. and, and, and calmly. So let's, I think we can, we can get back to, to this, this thing about your vision at, at yes. the end, towards the end here, because we're going to talk a little bit about your other projects, but this is all very fascinating. But let's go back to the book here, Body Heat Body Fiasco, heat. because eventually you, um, uh, as we understand here, um, continued to the, to the topic of, of how body heat is, is generated. And, and you, you quickly understood that the textbook model, the standard model is flawed in many ways. And so can, can, we just, can you just explain to the audience here uh, what what does the mainstream say is the the explanation for 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 us having body heat and what what do you propose instead what are your objections to this I think the standard model has has to do with chemical processes whereas you are focusing on on the on the physics of the body uh, in, in this matter so what is BAT and UCP one those are two crucial things Great. in this in this matter. That's that's a great question you've got you've uh, put there. The, the whole let's, is, is the yes. whole uh, you know yeah. shebang. Let, let's let's start with the standard model, which could be summarised um, in a question: How do humans generate body heat? The standard answer is: You go to the supermarket, you buy food. There's food energy in the food. You eat that food, and in the inside the body, there's there are chemical processes which give off heat. That's uh, UCP1, which is uncoupling protein one. There's a proton going down a mitochondrial 
gradient which gives off heat. And that supposedly occurs in this particular tissue, BAT or brown adipose tissue. Uh, brown fat, you might say. Brown, which is the same as brown fat, exactly. That is brown fat. So this UCP1 gives off heat in within brown fat. There's, there's a secondary uh, source of heat, apparently, according to the mainstream view, which is um, when your muscles move, some of the energy is given off as motion, but some of it's also given off as heat. So moving muscles generates heat. Getting back to the, the, this mainstream explanation, you've gone to the supermarket, you've eaten food, there's a chemical burn in your cells which gives off heat, and then that warms the body, and then you might breathe in air. Say, for in instance, it's snowing in, in Sweden at the moment, uh, or it was is, overnight. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You might breathe in air, and it might be, say, two degrees when it goes in here. And by the time it's reached your lungs, it's heated up to 36.9. That is the standard view. You eat the food, there's a chemical burn, that warms the body. And then when you breathe in cold air, the warm body warms the air as it passes through these tubes. Mm. Two, um, focus on, uh, say, two, two, key, two key problems with that. One is, if you've got a tube that's this long, and you've got air passing through it, and it yeah. needs to, 7.5 litres per minute of air, needs to come in at two, two degrees here, and by the time it's reached here, it's been increased to 36.9 degrees. Somehow, by just touching the sides of this tube, mm. it's supposed to have warmed up there. Uh, now, if you try, known physics would say, you've got to have a tube that's pretty hot to just pass 7.5 litres of air through that to warm it up from 2 degrees to 36.9. So how hot does it have to be in order to be able to heat it that much, to heat let's, the air that much? Let's say it has to be hotter Hotter than 36.9 degrees. Oh, that's degrees. obvious, yes, yes. Yes, but there's nothing between here and here, the nose and the which lungs, is hotter than 36.9. No, that's true. Yeah, it's, it doesn't make sense when you think about it. Yeah, there's, there's a missing, there's no superheated element there. No. Um, and just, so, um, and if this chemical burn is happening in the UCP1 with his, within the brown adipose tissue, there's a problem there in that pigs are warm-blooded, but pigs don't have the brown adipose tissue. Birds are warm-blooded, but birds don't have brown adipose tissue or UCP1. Hmm. And some some fish and, and reptiles have UCP1. Yeah, th those are those are cold-blooded. So let's let's look at yes the difference between because we're we are speaking about warm-blooded creatures like mammals like ourselves and also birds who are uh, creating heat by the way that you are going to explain soon here. But the other, the other types of creatures, the cold-blooded ones, they are dependent. I mean, their body, their body heat is dependent on the, the outside temperature all the time, as far as I understand. So exactly. They either, they either gain their heat directly from sitting in the sun. So directly from the sun or from their environment, like lying on a warm rock yeah. um, and, and the idea being that uh, we're smart as, as mammals, we can operate the whole time, regardless of whether we have a, cold, a hot rock or the sun is shining. Um, we eat this food and we generate our heat. 
But the mainstream view being we generate the heat by uh, chemical process, a chemical process within the cells. Um, by contrast, what the understanding that I'm bringing to the picture is that inside the body, there's a certain amount of tension. There are, there are bones pushing this way. There are muscles pulling the opposite direction. And so the, uh, the model being, you go to the supermarket and you buy the food. There's food energy in the food. The food energy powers those muscles to create that tension. So you've got a tension system that you then breathe air into. And there are spirals in your nose, the nasal contour or turbinates. You breathe air in through these spirals and you squeeze it in this tension system. And when you squeeze a gas, the temperature of that goes north. Mm. You squeeze the gas, that warms the air. And so the point I'm getting across is that you squeeze the gas to warm the gas and the warm air warms the body, not the warm air, not the warm body warming the air. Yeah, it's the it's, other way around from the, the standard it, model now. Exactly. But um, if you've been brought up on a textbook book which says, which talks about brown adipose tissue and maybe inefficient muscle contraction, uh, you go down that pathway. There's, there's no easy point at which you can put your hand up and say, oh, look, uh, that doesn't seem to work. Uh, you, uh, it normally wouldn't enter, it wouldn't enter your mind. And if, if you did, you'd be maybe drummed out of your particular institution for, um, <laughs> for suggesting that. So, uh, yeah, it, but it, um, there are a lot of examples which suggest that, yes, this has got to do with squeezing air Mm. not with a chemical burn. Mm. And, and, and the, that's uh, compressing air raises the temperature of that, that gas. That's, that's a well-known fact. I mean, that's not controversial at all. No. And, and for example, in, uh, in a diesel engine, in, instead of having a, a spark plug to generate the explosion, in a diesel engine, the piston just pushes the, the, the fuel mixture. Yeah. Heat the heat increases and that yeah. causes the mm -hmm. um, the, the ignition. Um, that that's a practical example of this adiabatic expansion, yeah. adiabatic a, a uh, process, I should say. Uh, but then there are lots. There are other examples in in, in real life which we yeah. discuss. But this is the basic basic uh, mechanism here. That uh, and this is, I mean, it's very straightforward, and it seems so much simpler than the chemical explanation talking about i mean occam's razor which is supposed to be a principle that you that you uh, employ when you want to find the the simplest well it says basically that the simplest explanation to something is is probably the the correct explanation so anyway everybody can can understand this the physics of the body i mean <clears throat> just by thinking about it for for a little while whereas the chemical processes are very difficult to to get a grasp on if you're not an expert and and yeah. I I know I appreciate why why you said at the outset it's like hang on this this could be baloney this could be this could be crazy but it doesn't seem that way um, and at least having the conversation about it you're brave enough to have the conversation and say open the floor and um, have people comment to say well Paul well Anders uh, this doesn't work because of X Y and Z yeah let's yeah. have that conversation let's and, have it. And yes, explain, yes. and explain I, I, why. I, I, 
invite people to to contradict you if if they can in in a wise way and that's that's also interesting and it's i mean it would be good for you too also to have it, exactly i could concentrate on something else yeah exactly <laughs> okay okay so yes. i was wrong okay let's go on to yeah, yeah exactly and i shouldn't be cancelled for that no one should be cancelled no, for no, having no, of course not. for having an open mind and have, having different but i have views. to say that the book isn't i mean it's not it's not baloney when you read it because it's very i mean it's it's um based in, in in science and as far as i can tell i'm a layman but i i know enough science to understand that you are not i mean you're referring to a lot of scientists and uh, i know some of the references that you make there so it, it, it tells me that you have been thinking about this a lot and uh, i i may look crazy and sound crazy but i'm not <laughs> i'm not wholly crazy no you're not no so uh i had just a, a detailed question about the cold-blooded animals don't they i mean they they breathe air too don't they yes so why um, don't they heat up their bodies by compressing that air into their lungs that such a good such a good question um and for example all um at a thermodynamic level so most oh, chemical reactions do tend to give off heat and and so if you have a chemical reaction happening there's normally some heat given off at the at the same time but we're looking at this the distinction between the cold-blooded animals and the warm-blooded animals. And you're saying, hey, Paul, uh, cold-blooded animals breathe too. Like, good point, good point. Um, the, uh, there, there's, there are certain distinctions, uh, there's a certain difference between our respiratory system and theirs. A, a key one is that um, in birds and mammals, you have this turbine like structure in your nose through like which spirals in the, in the it, nose exactly and that's that's um indicative of something that's to do with with pressure and forcing something through uh and increasing the speed and changing changing the pressure uh reptiles and amphibians don't have those spirals with one or two exceptions uh, there there is uh, a sea turtle for example that i'll put it this way the sea turtle apparently has a simple analog of the spirals of, of the more complex spirals that birds and mammals have. The sea turtle has the uh, has the spirals in its nose, and just by coincidence, that is one of the exceptional reptiles which demonstrates elevated body heat. Mm-hmm. Compelling. Yeah, compelling and sure. I'm fishing for evidence. Anyone who's uh, <laughs> any, anyone who's putting something forward will hope to find things that that um, that agree with it, with 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 what they're putting forward. Um, and I know in science, just it's uh, best practice is to sort of uh, not look for that supporting evidence, just to try and disprove, disprove, disprove. Mm. Um, and uh, if I was able to disprove that what I'm putting forward about body heat, uh, then I'd. In life, it'd be a lot easier, but it's um, paradoxically, it's, uh, this is supposed to be a credibility builder because I have other things that I need to say. Yeah, um, this. yeah, that's it's going to be super interesting to follow your your coming work here. So, uh, among the most compelling, talking about compelling, uh, compelling pieces of evidence in your book is or are examples of humans who are able to keep their body heat in extremely cold conditions. And you discuss, for instance, Mr. Wim Hof, the so-called Iceman, who is known to many people. Um, And many who know about him, they assume that his trick is to, in some way, um, 
focus energy. Uh, I mean, they don't know exactly how that works, but they're talking about his ability to focus energy like, you know, shamans or yogis or people like that. And scientists have gauged his body, as far as I understand, when, when he sits in ice water and things like that. But they haven't really come up with a sustainable uh, explanation to what is happening here. And, and you say, as far as I understand, measure the air that he's breathing, right? Yes, he's doing special things with his breathing. He's, he's able to, to swim almost 60 meters underwater in ice. He can stay in ice cold baths for two hours. He can set world records doing these things. And there's, there have been a number of studies on him trying to work out how's he doing it. Wim Hof has come from a yoga breathing sort of background when he instructs people about how best to to take these challenges he he talks about specific breathing patterns how to breathe in a particular way and if you're exposed to what i'm putting forward which is hang on breathing is important for squeezing the air then then it seems fairly obvious but if you're instead focused on well, there's something happening at a cellular level. Mm. Maybe it's got to do with oxygen or something like that. Uh, then, um, then you can you can go down the chemistry pathway and try and ex- explain it. Uh, but um, there's 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 no good explanation of why the chemistry should change. Uh, by contrast, if you assume certain postures and uh, do certain breathing, then all of a sudden you're handling the air in your respiratory system in a different way. And that can change just by moving the air around and changing how you're moving it around. That changes the pressure, which has temperature effects. Mm. So the whole explanation in your view to his ability to sit in ice for two hours is that he is he's forcing his breathing or he's breathing in a particular way, or he's able to compress air more efficiently than others, or he, he, he's, he's breathing in a particular way, which means that he can, um, compress the air very well. But to get to that point, he's been focusing on his alignment and meditation. And, th- and the classic for meditation is concentrate on your breath and on your breathing. Mm. And just with any mechanical process, if everything is nicely aligned, for example, there's a put down about hippies talking about having all the chakras in a, in a row. Yeah. Um, if everything's nicely in a, in a, in alignment, then the mechanics, the mechanism for squeezing and breathing air, because warming air is the defining feature of being alive. And it's how our our bodies have evolved to sort of be quite good at doing that. And the more, and if we concentrate on that, and, and particularly if, and Wim has been able to achieve this through uh, through meditation and alignment with his yoga and his concentration on his how he breathes. Um, and also po- positive thinking can't hurt in terms of being uh, upbeat and, and approaching things with, with an open mind and a can-do sort of attitude. That all helps with having a body that's going to squeeze the air very well and, um, and have the right the right tension, the right tensional integrity, you might say, to um, to achieve the goal, which is uh, maintaining the body temperature. Mm. I just came up with a, with another example that is very good in your book uh, uh, about 
the fact that cold-blooded uh, that i mean it is the breathing that generates heat in the body of of warm-blooded uh, creatures namely that birds birds are warm-blooded and but um, as long as uh, the little chickens or the chicks or whatever it's called are in the in the eggs they can't breathe of course and then they are cold-blooded there they are cold-blooded and, but if it were the the chemical thing then they would of course be able to generate their own heat in the body within within the egg but they aren't so they are very dependent on 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 uh, exactly the parent bird to, to, warm it. Yeah. to to keep the to keep the eggs warm if it was a simple chemical process which was gen generating heat then the parent birds wouldn't have to spend their time and energy sitting on eggs they could they could leave them somewhere safe and they could be somewhere else yeah, because, and, I mean, their their hearts are ticking and everything is working. All the all the other processes in their cells, yeah, so it's at least very close time. to hatching. It, it it is like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so that's a good example. Yeah. So yeah, well, this thing about Wim Hof is is also very very interesting, of course. And um, there's and also a, a, sorry, he's inspiring. He's inspiring a lot of people to do great yes, things. And and um, one of those, how I was talking about the. Um, the yoga and the alignment and the meditation helping the breathing. One way of helping your breathing and getting everything into good alignment and good working order throughout the body is you can you can work on on the alignment and the and the meditation, or you can put a bit of overload on your body by getting into the cold bath, mm. and then your body knows. Hang on, these bones have to be aligned correctly. I have to work on my breathing. Your yeah. body instantaneously starts oh I'm, I'm squeezing um that's and you get used used to doing that strengthening the system and then you can handle the cold bath oh, yeah. and you can handle the cold bath um and everything's in better alignment and that has so many spin-off benefits for the rest of your life mm. um, so a cold shower a cold bath uh if your hot water system goes off don't be too worried about it but uh, well i should be living in the right part of the world done because it's very cold in the winter here in Sweden, but I, I, I actually don't enjoy the cold that much. Well, I can enjoy if I have a lot of clothes, I enjoy taking a walk in the, in the, in the snow and all that. But uh, I, I always felt that I was born in the wrong climate. I would <laughs> love to live in the tropics, but anyway, um, the, this yoga breathing that you're speaking about here, the Ujjayi, 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 the warrior breath. Yeah. U the, the the victorious breath or something yes. yeah breathing yes ujjayi breathing i practiced it a little bit i practiced yoga ashtanga yoga uh, just for half a year many years ago uh, it was very interesting and then nowadays i i practice meditation uh, practically every day and it's it's similar because it, it involves this type of breathing and i try to use this use this uh, ujjayi breathing when i meditate also at least uh, during part of the meditation. But my impression is that what, what happens is, or what you feel is not so much uh, uh, an, ex, um, an additional heating of your body, but a softening of your body. There's a softening. There's a feeling of you're being soft and, and, and um, flexible and, and uh, all pain goes away and things like that. So it's not so much the heat, but as um, uh, some kind of alignment or whatever potentially that potentially if if you concentrate in on your breathing so you're more effortlessly getting the getting the right uh temperature then parts of your body which muscles which have been tense and tight can ease off and relax oh, okay 
and it's it, it is effect of uh, effective breathing exactly and it's it's reminding me of i've got a model here somewhere i referred to tensional integrity um which is this concept that um the structural concept with i don't know if you can see that but the yeah, yeah. Uh, looks like a molecule or something or a model of a molecule rather. It, exactly and uh there's a complicated thing called tensional integrity, which which is which just involves that the models of it generally involve a, a a stick, which is a compression element, and then a tension element, which is a um, a string, and our whole body is uh, structured this way. the The muscles and the ligaments uh, hold everything in a tension, mm -hmm. and the the hard elements, the bones, don't actually uh, don't actually touch each other. They're held apart. And inside this, you have uh, air pushing out. If if your posture and your breathing go down, then then bones may start to um, push against each other, and then you get replacement knees and replacement hips. But in um, a young, healthy individual, the bones are actually pulled apart mm -hmm. uh, which contrasts with the sort of standard model in medicine which assumes that everything just sits on top of each other like a column yeah held down by gravity yeah. as opposed to being pulled out um, oh. a, a, a simple example of of that is um, in in a if you think of a dinosaur a dinosaur's head yeah on the end of a long neck if it was all just about bones and muscles just sort of hanging on um, the dinosaur would not be able to support its its neck on the end of on the end of its head on the end of a neck all day but by contrast if there's all air throughout here and everything's sort of pushing out and structured then it can uh, support its head um, the uh, as much as it needs to well, Perhaps well, I could give you saying that, that there's air in the system, also in this bone structure. Um, the, the air helps uh, inflate and distribute everything. Uh, mm -hmm. I could give a different example. Imagine if, if you had a dumbbell in your hand and you tried to hold it out at arm's length. Yeah. You couldn't do that for very long. No. But if you had one of those inflatable sort of fat suits on, then you could you could do that all day because that would, that would be an inflatable by the, the, the exactly. And um, which takes us to the dinosaurs, which yeah. uh, if you've, if you're inflated to a particular way and then all of a sudden the carbon dioxide changes because a uh, meteor hits the earth, mm. then, mm -hmm. um, then you've got a, uh, you, you've got a problem because um, uh, you, you either, if there's more, more carbon dioxide in the air, it's, it's problematic for your breathing. That's another book that you're yeah, exactly on. Exactly. <laughs> yes, this is fascinating. Body tension. But you, you were talking about air being distributed within the body also, uh, I mean, uh, uh, outside of the lungs, which is a bit controversial. Uh, oh, it's more that the, the tension is. that The, the, the tension, okay. Yes, because... Um, because I mean, the, the heat, the, the body heat that is generated by the compression of the air in the lungs is distributed by way of the blood. I, I surmise exactly. Yeah. And um, and just this part of this tensional integrity system within the within the um, within the human body. Part of that is the respiratory system, which pushes out this part. But um, to to uh, 
to take it further to to go towards um, a more fringe uh, fringe versus mainstream view. Um, if you asked someone who was uh, who had just finished their medical exams, okay, tell us tell us which muscles are important in the respiratory system. Um, they'd say, okay, well, there's the there's these uh, intercostal muscles and the diaphragm, uh, the ones around the ribs and the diaphragm. Um, and maybe the ones in your neck if you're really struggling for breath, but if someone's sort of using those actively, you think, oh, there's a problem there. So let's say the diaphragm and and the uh, and the muscles around your ribs, rib cage. Yeah. And that's and I'd say, okay, well, is your are the muscles in your hand are they important? No, no, of course they're not important with your breathing. But if riddle me this one, if I take an in breath and breathe in and out as you like, mm -hmm. if I clench my fist and try and take an in-breath, that's, that's getting, that, what's going on there? How, how does something here, how could that be important? The muscles in your hands. You need to breathe in heavily, deeply when you, when you have an open hand. That's true. Yeah, it's, it's like the old song, the knee bones connected to the leg. Uh, and yeah, all yeah, things. Yeah. This is connected these muscles in the hand are connected all the way through down here. So if this is tight, you can't really breathe very well. And if your feet, similarly, if you scrunch up your feet and then try and take a deep in breath, you can't do it. So it's all connected. Um, people do exercise. People do yoga. People do Tai Chi. It keeps these things pliable and working together so that um, different, so even though the air is in, the, the chest there's tension that is re that mm. connects connects mm. those two so so there's the the air is is restricted um to to within the bounds of the sort of conventionally understood respiratory system but the tension goes throughout yeah and this internal tension thing uh, is also not something that is that is talked about in the in the textbook no and, and and another example of it is in a in a football what in australia might be called a soccer ball there's air pushing out in in that direction, and then the, the 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 skin of the ball is is pulling in. So you've got a push in one direction and a pull in the other direction, yeah. and that distributes the forces so that if you kick the ball, bang, it's distributed over the whole of the ball, and it can go for a hundred meters. By contrast, if you deflate the ball, so it's it's just a, a an empty soccer ball. If you kick that around for any length of time it breaks. Mm. But if you put air in it, so it's all distributed nicely, bang, you could kick it for, for weeks and weeks. Mm. And, um, and that's a, that the, the forces are distributed evenly over this tensional integrity system because it's got a high degree of tensional integrity. Whereas if you let all the air out, mm. uh, that, that thing doesn't work properly. Fascinating. Good example. So how is how can the body keep uh, its temperature as stable as it does uh, at around 36.9 degrees Celsius? Yeah, a very good question. Um, there's... I mean, we breathe differently in different... Uh, well, anyway, just answer. <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, one of, the, one of the, the studies which I referred to in the book uh, was looking at these monks uh, who were practicing something called TUMO or G-TUMO. And that study divided up this special breathing that they were doing 
and found that there are two elements of it. One was purely the physical forceful breathing. They knew that something to do with the forceful breathing um, can increase the temperature. But then there was also the mental element of it um, where the monks who were doing this tumo didn't just do the forceful breathing. They also had certain imagery associated with it. When a group of test people were trained up, they could use the forceful breathing straight away to increase their body temperature, but it only stayed within a certain band. So if they were sort of towards the lower end of the normal range, they could push it up to the top, but they would, they would stick at a point and they mm -hmm. wouldn't go above that. Whereas the monks would, could increase their body temperature higher than that. And the understanding was that the forceful breathing can get you to, to a certain point, but your body has innate an innate thermostat or something which just sort of says, okay, we're, we're hot enough now, so we're not going to go above that. But if you do certain visualization of, of flames and things like that, that's, mm -hmm. uh, and that's sort of a, that's, that's not describing it very well, um, that you can push past these limits. But unless you're doing the special visualization, the forceful breathing can get you to a certain point and you stay there and that the body's sort of thermostat um, will, will not um, let you get past that point. Do, do you think that 36.9 degrees is, is the optimal temperature or, or is it, should it actually be a little bit higher perhaps if we were better at breathing correctly? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, to answer that question, I would like to go back in time to see um, what we the normal body temperature when we went modern anatomical. Yeah, yeah, 300,000 years ago. What was yeah, the temperature exactly. in the bodies at that time? Exactly. But, um, but I, I don't want to be uh, insist some sort of cruel authoritarian regime where we don't have any heating in our houses. We're all doing ice baths every morning. Um, we're all uh, having to shun any outside source of heat and, and generate ourselves. A warm bath is great, isn't it? Sauna is lovely. But being able to have that flexibility to deal with the cold and to understand what's important about being flexible, concentrating on our breathing, um, that, uh, you know, that, that can't hurt, I think. No, no, it will be very useful to say the least. Of course it would. Uh, uh, but sometimes we involuntarily have a higher uh, body temperature when we have a fever. So what's the deal with that? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I... I'm not sure if it's the body saying, well, I can go a step higher and I'm going to, and it's going to be too high for the, for the virus or something like that to sort of burn it out or whether it's the virus is making me breathe differently. And so the virus is, is, uh, is making the, me breathe differently. And therefore that's why the temperature is going, going yeah, high. Because that's what I was thinking. I mean, maybe we breathe differently when we have, when we're sick, when we have a fever. I mean, that hasn't been, Measured enough, I assume, but or and and there's stu the, studied. I mean, studied. Yes. Have they studied this? The, the breathing uh, in people who are sick. I, I'm not across that research, and then it would be the question of: Is it um, cause or effect? Is yeah, is the body yeah, is it cause or effect causing that to to try and snuff out the uh, the virus, or is it the virus causing that? And then our body has to sort of try and get over that, and then the temperature will come come down. Also, when you exercise, you get hot. Uh, is that not because mu the muscles are warmed up? Or you mentioned yeah. before that, that there is there is a certain effect from 
from activity in muscles also yes and the, the, the just just purely there's there's energy uh, being changed from stored energy to from stored energy to energy of motion and some yeah. of that will will go off it uh, okay. will be dissipated as heat but um, when when you're running you have additional airflow through the lungs more squeezing um, and uh, that's so uh, that's that's maybe you're perhaps squeeze you're driving more air through the lungs to get more oxygen yeah. and as a, as a sort of side effect, getting more squeezing. And, and so a key part of athletic the, performance yeah. is trying to manage that and try not overheat. Yeah. There's also another interesting theory in, in your book uh, that has to do with smoking. You, you have a theory about why smoking is so addictive. Gee, you're making and me sound I, crazy. I'm I I, sorry to say that I, as a Swede, I might have a, 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 a counter, different view on that, a different view, which may debunk that theory, but I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, yep. Because, you know, I mean, you say in the book that, well, nicotine is, is addictive, of course, but uh, you, your theory is that it is probably mainly because people are breathing in warm air that, that it is so addictive because the, the body feels in a way that uh, it, it, it makes it easier to, to heat the body. It's already warm. The, the, the air is already warm when it comes in, and that's why it's so addictive. Is that is that? Do I explain it correctly, or is no? You, you've but, explained it really well, and that bare bones. The body's saying, "Whatever I'm doing here is achieving one of my main goals, which is yeah. generating warmth. Yeah. So I want to do that more. And if I'm stressed or something like that, and not breathing quite as well, I want more of that. What do I do? I go back to this um, smoke to warm this, air. Yeah." <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but the thing is, you know, well, nicotine is, you, and you, your theory is that nicotine is, yes, it's addictive, but not as addictive as, as the body wanting warm air. But uh, here in Sweden, it's very common to use wet snuff, which is called snus. Yes, we, we, yes. And, that and it's got a lot of nicotine in it. And it's very well documented. And I know from, not from personal experience, but from, from the experience of many of my friends and, and close, close people people I have close to me, uh, that it is very, very difficult to, to quit um, using wet snuff. And it's more, dif- many have witnessed that testify that it's more difficult to quit using wet snuff than to quit smoking. Because right. a lot of people in Sweden have quit smoking and then they have gone over to this wet snuff thing and, and it's been much more difficult for them to, to quit that. And that has nothing to do with the breathing. It's just the negative. You put it on the, under your lip, you know, and, and you get the negative. So that's... Uh, mm. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a... Excellent point. And there are there are nicotine receptors in the brain. Yeah. And um, there, there's there was a line in the research uh, which was saying yes, there's there's a bit of a, a buzz from um, from nicotine, but the test animals rarely went back for more. So they'd go, oh yeah, okay. But there's the test animals would be subjected to it, but they wouldn't go back for more. Mm-hmm. But potentially, if your brain has developed the association between nicotine and and effortlessly getting some, getting some sort of free warm uh-huh, air. I mean, it's a Pavlovian uh, effect there. Yes, and uh, but but yes, that's gone through my mind, and I completely appreciate that. That's a sort of mm, question. Well, you mark. should look into that actually, because uh, I, I'm not sure if it might be the case that it is people who have been smoking first and then gone over to wet snuff that have this big problem quitting the snuff. I'm I'm not sure, rather than people that have have. Never just smoked started. and, and yes. just started with this uh, thing. So yeah. have I'll have to get that. the inst- see if the Scanlon Institute will um, fund that, yes. that, that research. Perhaps. Yes, yeah, a lot of question marks, and wouldn't it be great uh, because smoking. Uh, I think a lot of people 
people start and it might be cool when you're young. Not that I'm saying that it's cool, just, just to reiterate that. But people get started and then they have trouble stopping. Yeah. And it's very difficult to stop. And the number of deaths each year that are attributed to sort of a, a some sort of effect of smoking is, is a large number. So yeah, ideally, um, ideally, we'd understand more about that. It's a very good thing to look into what, what the reasons are. So uh, there's another thing here um, that you, you mentioned. Uh, we eat food to get energy, and apparently it's well established, um, as far as I understand from, from your book here, that about 90% of the energy that we take in, that we eat, uh, goes to heating the body. Mainstream says that it goes to chemical processes in the cells, and you say it goes to fuel the muscles around the respiratory organs, right? Yeah, the, the uh, muscles but and everything to, to maintain everything that tension. To maintain yes. that tension, but it's about 90%, right? 90% of, of the food that a mammal eat supposedly goes towards heat production. Yes. So is, is that figure that high, this high because we're doing such a bad job at it uh, or and that we would need much less food if we breathed? better would need less food if we breathe better if we had better alignment but um it, it's not as if it's going to come down by by a huge amount because that not to 10 percent from 90 to 10 but from no, 90 to 80 maybe or it might um the the thing is it's metabolically it's it's sort of i don't want to use that word but it's um it's quite a costly thing to keep warming up 7.5 liters of air a minute so mm -hmm. We need a lot of energy to do that. And all our other bodily systems are sort of keyed into it. They're lined up with 36.9. So, so we've hooked up to this sort of high output system. So we need a lot of food energy to generate that. But we could generate it better if our alignment was, was better. Um, yeah. So uh, people who do the sort of slow restorative yoga or Tai Chi, you'd think, how's that going to affect your body comp composition? Um, in the... After having done that, you, your body uh, demands less food. It says, mm -hmm. you know, we're not quite as, quite as hungry. And my interpretation of that is, well, if you work on your posture and, and your alignment, you don't need as much fuel to generate the, the, same, the same body level of body heat. Um, I'm also interested in the, in the structural role of, of body fat as well. Uh, if to, to give you a... An analogy, imagine you're walking down the stairs, uh, you're a bit, um, you're not as stable as you could be, but you're fine. If you wrapped yourself in a duvet, uh, which could be called a doona in Australia or a big blanket, all of a sudden you're a bit more, you're a bit more stable. So if everything is a bit out of kilter, if, if you're not in good alignment and your body puts on a bit of fat, Anybody says, oh, okay, well, that works. We'll keep doing that. Yeah. But if, you're, uh, if you have a strong back and good alignment, the body says, well, look, I ate, ate as much food as the guy sitting next to me, but my body's not going to be uh, laying it down as fat. Wow. Yeah, wow. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of interesting. But, to, to, but, but I also, then you can but, see in children who, who are, are um, breathing through the mouth and so on. Yeah. Yes. And but then it it could feed back on itself in terms of then you can't breathe as well because um, the the layer of the, the fat might be getting in the way of sort of the, the optimal movement. But I can I but you and I realize that we're having this open minded conversation, 
and we're engaging with the fringe here, um, my fringe. Um, and and it, it's interesting to consider these aspects rather than there's, there's uh, you eat, you eat, your body turns it into fat. So mm. someone who's fat has, has, has either eaten more or, um, or hasn't done as much exercise. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple. People, no, there are advocates. Is, nothing, yeah. That's right. There are advocates for who are saying, no, it's not about the food. Mm. And then there are other people who are saying, no, it's not about the exercise. Mm. I'm saying that there, there is a, a, a structural role of fat, which no one else is saying. But No, yeah. but I think, I think you're onto, onto something. Please keep uh, studying I'll, that. See what I, really see what I can do. What you find. So well, Paul, I can see that you don't have you don't have a personal interest, which is which is fantastic. But uh, well, no, not yet. <laughs> might might have later. We'll see. So how how does mainstream science and medicine react to your findings? If if, if they do in some way, in any way, I know that you have you told me beforehand that you have recently presented a paper at the International Conference of Systems Biology and Bioengineering. So what has the reaction been to that? They, um, I had a very polite response, but this was amongst engineers. Engineers yeah. don't, a, a, engineers aren't bound by, oh, what did the engineer say in 1826? Or what did the engineer say in 1921? They go, what works? When, when engineers want to heat, want to create warm air, they don't use chemistry. They use physics. They squeeze. And um, it, if engineers could generate uh, warm air using chemistry, they'd do it. Sure. But instead, we use air conditioning, which involves adiabatic heating and cooling. And uh, so for, from an engineer's perspective, that's fine. It makes a bit of sense. And as we'd mentioned earlier, maybe there's a bit of both. Maybe there's, there's some of the chemistry gives off a bit of heat. Maybe if you're, if you're a baby, you've got a lot of brown adipose tissue, much more than adults. So as a baby, if you don't have your muscles and bones fully matured, so you can't squeeze the air and you don't have, I haven't seen a baby with good posture yet. I don't mean to posture shame babies, but um, <laughs> they, so they have some chemistry which can give off heat and the, and the parents do their best to keep them warm as well. Um, but uh, en engineers are open-minded and they do what works. Uh, they, they, I, did you say, they, they, did you say um, that you're, you're a positive sort of person, um, the glass is half full? En engineers don't say the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. They just say the glass is twice as large as it needs to be. They don't yeah. sort of bring that emotional baggage. So I had a positive, polite response um, from good. World Congress on Engineers. By I won't say by contrast, but I will say by contrast, when I presented a paper about vision and the impact of the spiritual system and, and, and pressure on, on the inside, um, I presented a paper in Singapore at the International Myopia Conference there, um, the uh, people didn't there didn't really want to engage with it because it's uh, it, their bread and butter is is selling glasses. Yeah. They're trying to do the right thing, uh, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You I might know. say, um, and there's a big industry there in in selling glasses, and mm -hmm. you can live a long and happy life with glasses, and that's great. But I just have uh, some some uh, 
So a, a different not aspect. only put on their glasses, they put on their blinkers as well, big ones. Yes, but again, it's um, one of the challenging things about being in the visual care industry would be you've worked hard at school, then you go to university and you probably come out with a huge, uh, with, with some sort of student debt and you get taken on. And, and it's, there's no point where you can really put your hand up and say, oh, hang on, isn't all this close-up work, isn't, isn't this sort of making the, the problem worse? Next thing you know, maybe you've got your own practice and your own practice, you have to sell these uh, things. Um, and you might be part of a franchise and the franchise franchise, uh, or would be saying, oh, you've got seven minutes to see each, each client. And you, you don't have a long form podcast mm. to, to pick up things like this and say, oh, well, look, your eyes yes, are like I know, this yeah, and, and talk, um, talk. Yeah, it's understandable. Things. It's understandable. Yeah, it, how I would express it would be the incentive landscape mm. is not something that sort of lends itself to. Oh, let's go back to basics and reevaluate this question. No, it doesn't. No. Maybe so, in the third. Yeah. What, what, what would the practical consequences, the, the implications be for science and for the for society at large uh, if we get a new, if, if we have this new understanding of body heat generation? What would it be? Um, it could save a lot of people. Uh, there are different levels. For example, at a practical level, uh, tens of thousands of people just in the UK alone, the excess winter deaths are uh, sort of tens of thousands higher than in, uh, than, in, than in summer. So some people's lives will be saved if there's more emphasis on, hey, let's, uh, let's work on our posture a bit. Mm -hmm. um, there's, uh, there's also, say, cost savings or less fossil fuel use if we, uh, less energy used if we um, are able to, uh, not heat our homes as much. But as, as I say, I don't, I don't want to stop people from heating their homes or having cups of tea and coffee. Um, the uh, We've put a question mark over something to do with cigarette smoking. Um, there, there may be less people uh, take up the, the sport of cigarette smoking or uh, more people are able to, to give it up if, if they could understand more. If, if there is some input there hmm. um and on, on the on the wider question of say what what's the what's the impact for science the great thing one of the funny things about science is if if you read the sort of hardcore skeptic science scientists they say no no we um we're open to everything uh but they'll they'll fight it to the death to sort of stop new ideas coming in but then when they have to accept them then it's like, oh, that's the way the system's designed to work. So it could be quite neatly um, incorporated into science and you could draw a line under it and say, oh, there was a period when we thought the body heat was mainly from chemistry. We've recognized it's maybe from physics. And then if you ask the question, well, how did that come about? Oh, well, we sort of took into account a lot of observations. Uh, and no, there was this, there was this British Australian guy called Paul many years ago, yeah. and he wrote this book that, yeah. Paul Bolling, was it? Is that Paul right? Paul Bolling. <laughs> and, yeah. and the, um, so, and how did he, oh, and there were some murmurs about it in some of the ancient sort of texts. And yeah, uh, yeah. then then people may say, oh, well, is there any other sort of ancient, say, spiritual texts, any other lessons from those things that we might have overlooked or written off? Because, 
hey, we've got the enlightenment from the 1700s and we're doing all this crazy stuff to do with chemistry and we've made huge technological gains and that's fantastic. Mm. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't ignore all this wisdom. People weren't, uh, weren't quite so dopey as you might assume um, in the times before science. When, when you look at things like the pyramids, for example, mm. people in the past were obviously quite clever. And they had a lot of time to sit around thinking about posture and breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have sort of Netflix and things like that. No, to, no. To spend and the posture isn't the best when you're looking at on Netflix. And yeah. Films, that's for sure. So what, what, what is the I'm problem? anti-Netflix in case you're thinking about a Netflix documentary or anything, but yes. Yeah. What, what, uh, what's the problem with mainstream science, would you say? I mean, what... what because textbooks and professionals, they seem to have all the answers when they, in fact, don't. Yes. Uh, there is something, I mean, proud about it or stubborn about it. Or what, what, what is the basic problem, do you think, here? That is, it's not that open. What I'd like to say is that, get, getting back to that, say, incentive landscape, it's sort of who's going to be funded to do these sort of, let's end, undermine our own industry. Um, and um, there are a lot of things where, Mainstream science is fantastic, spot on. There's no sort of distorting factors. Great. But um, it's difficult to uh, sort of convince someone of something when, they're, uh, when their wage depends on them not mm. understanding and not, not putting it forward. Um, the, I know some people are quite... Uh, it, there's this peer review process, for example, and initially, when I published, uh, sought, sought to publish papers about the eyes, for example, yeah. and again with body heat. Now I've had the body heat published in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm happy with that. That's great. But when you get knockbacks from um, significant journals that say, "Yeah, this this is this can't go in our main journal," and you've you've said maybe it could go in one of your sort of sister journals. No, we're not even going to pass that on. Try somewhere else. Um, thanks, but no. Having said that, it's tough if you're a mainstream journal, a mainstream scientist, and you've got someone who looks like they live under a bridge suggesting, oh, maybe something a bit different is correct. Uh, you, um, you might have a lot of those queries in a, in a day, mm. and it's hard to sort the wheat from the chaff. Mm. So I'm trying to be charitable there. And they're all people of, um, of, of wanting to do their best. And if you're really hard stream, hard sort of mainstream Western medicine, you think everyone who's proposing something different is 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 a threat and could somehow be costing lives and yeah. and having some negative effect. So that's what fuels you to try and stop those people yeah. even being heard, which I, I think know. is which cuts a, across this sort of free speech. Paul speaks to Anders. Mm. If Paul's speaking rubbish, great. There'll be, will it will come out in the wash? Yeah, people will work and that out. People will have great fun listening to it anyway. So, yes, <laughs> they can laugh their heads off anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the art of victory is the art of persistence. Somebody said. Uh, so Agreed. just keep keep doing what you're doing. I think at some point I'll, some... I'll persist, and and I accept that some people will not embrace it, and mm-hmm. um, that. Uh, they'll want to express that, and and I, I get that. So um, uh, if I've offended anyone, um, my apologies. And 
but we're just having a discussion. It's just, scientists. It, yes, it's just air coming out, out of my mouth, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to. Well, offend. it has to do with air and air pressure anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah certainly. So so we'll we've talked for a long time, and it's been fantastic. Uh, we'll soon wrap this up, I think. But we have a few more subjects or topics here to um, to uh, handle. <laughs> uh, talking about your you, you began you early on you spoke about this vision thing that the, you're interested in in vision and how it works and how you were uh trying to to improve your own your own vision because you were myopic when you were younger and you were um you managed to eliminate your dependence on glasses as you said uh through a process of experimentation and we didn't really Get, get to, to the, the end of that, of that. Uh, yep. i think so what 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 happened what was the uh, the outcome yep. and and what are you going to do with that that knowledge now right so that, to us answer that last bit first that knowledge now i'm i'm putting it into a, a book that um, i'm sure amazon will, will that'll also race up the charts on amazon which would be fantastic but um, it, in a nutshell you have a the length of your eyeball is important for for accuracy for good vision at near or, or far distances. You have this squashy ball in the wall of your body. And what I came to understand was there's pressure from the, from the respiratory system and from the inside, which affects how long or short that eyeball is. And so by better understanding that and by working on the posture and breathing, you can have that eyeball being in the right range, being able to shorten or lengthen um, because you're, you're breathing properly and your alignment's good. Yeah. Um, when, when you're, uh, I could give you some examples of the um, mentioned about, um, about why I'm saying that the breathing and the vision are connected. Uh, and that this is something I drew attention to the, I drew the optical industry's attention to back at the International Myopia Conference back in 2006. Although they don't, they don't seem to have run with the ball just yet. But the first example, I'm, I'm saying that posture and, and, and breathing, that breathing and vision are, are closely connected. Mm-hmm. Whereas mainstream optometry does not talk about breathing apart from the fact that, yes, the eyeballs need oxygen. Um, to give you the, the, the simple example, um, if you take if if you look at something, uh, if if you breathe in and out and feel with your mouth closed and you feel how easy or difficult that is, easy. If you look at something in the distance and try and take a deep in breath and feel how easy or difficult that is, and then if you look at something up as close as you can to your eyes, like the ridges on your fingerprints on your fingers, and you try and take a deep in breath doing that. <laughs> And then I ask, is it easier to take a deep in breath when you're looking in the distance or when you're looking at something right up close? Mm. Rhetorical question. Rhetorical question, because for me, and I think for the majority of people, they'll find that if they're trying to look at something up close, they can't take a deep in breath. It's like when you clench your your, your fist, as you said before, yeah. your hand. Yes, yes. And there's a reason for that, as opposed to just some faulty wiring in the brain that's um, sending out the, the yeah. messages. Um, to see well in the distance... A short eyeball is good. To see well up close, a long eyeball is good. Mm. So 
when your body says, I want to look at something, when you're saying, I want to look at something up close, your body stops you from breathing in a lot, stops you so that the eyeball can bulge back and be long. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But to see well in the distance, you want a short eyeball. So the body says, by all means, take a deep in breath, push that eyeball short. Yeah, basic physics. Yeah. And, and then another simple example where this is, this is near and this is far and I've got them lined up. So all I'm doing is changing, looking near, far, near, far, near, far. And that's, so all I'm doing is changing whether I'm looking near or near or far. If I hum, that's output of my respiratory system. If yeah. I hum at the same time as looking near, far, near, far, I hear the sound of my humming go up or down, which is telling, depending on whether I'm looking near or far, yeah, yeah. which is telling me that there's a change in pressure depending on whether my body's saying, oh, I'm looking at something in the distance now. Oh, I'm looking at something up close now. So there's, the, there's that change. And then the third simple example is, what do you do when you sneeze? If there wasn't pressure from the respiratory system pushing against the back of your eyeball, then when you have that high pressure event the sneeze, you wouldn't need to brace the front of your eyeball to keep them sort of inside you. So, yeah. <laughs> so they don't pop out. Yeah, exactly. So so there's a connection between the posture and the breathing. And personally, I wore glasses. I was at, for 10 years, I was at minus three, minus 3.25, 2008 uh, under the control conditions of the Australian sort of uh, road uh, traffic, the the driver's license people, I was able to pass the eye test to see well enough to drive, which mm. is 2040 um, without any glasses. And that did the same again in 2013. So um, so your I've, vision is, is normal, back to normal now? I fell off the, the horse a little bit for um, for about six or 12 months without where I might, didn't do much yoga. And I was just, uh, so my vision's gone down a little bit again, yeah. but um, I, I, could, I still... I'm probably still 2040, but you're okay. I don't have a car to drive at the moment. So okay. uh, I'm, I'm not borderline and I'm on the road. No, no. It's, going- still, it's fascinating that you've been able to improve it that much. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic. It's a, I mean, and, and the problem things. being that, that being an anecdote and you, you'll read about people on the internet. Yes. I've improved my eyes. I've improved this. Um, but no one's going to um, fund a study that, that would do everyone out of, out of business. Cause that's the bread and butter of, yeah, the glass industry and the, the and the contact lens in industry that that's big business, of course. And and they try to do the right thing. They try to do what they've been well, taught. Of course, yeah, well, everybody tries to do the right thing, but so much money involved. It's yeah creates if you problems. Can, if you can have a competition of ideas and sort of open dialogue and free speech, yeah, then yeah, I think so too. So this is one thing. Then looking into the future here the vision thing uh, and but you also your next missions are also i understand to explain not just how vision works but also how cancer works and how yeah. consciousness what consciousness is tell us more yes. about that let's go for let's just go for consciousness um the in the the, the point i'm getting across and that's it's um that has sort of occupied me for quite a long time is is the importance of, of tension, push in one direction and a pull in the other direction. And when you've got that tension and a push this way and that way, that's when you have life. That's when you have brain, thought, consciousness. And there's a push and a pull everywhere. There's a push and a pull between the earth and the moon. But apparently we're not supposed to be able to feel that even though 
you know, the, the, the oceans do and uh, all the all the, the, the water. So we're supposed to be not quite um, uh, able to fit, to feel that. But there's 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 a push and a pull between the Earth and the Moon, the Earth and the Sun, the planets, everything. We're spinning around, um, and it goes from that sort of huge scale down to a, a tiny scale as well. But um, with consciousness, we are and and tension. Um, the the easiest thing that I could could leave you with the easiest, the best example that I uh, know of is um, is if you there's a thought that uh, it's just in the brain. Consciousness mm. is just in the brain, and that's that's it. Nothing else is is relevant. And then when the brain gets smashed, bang, you're gone. That's that's the end of everything. But um, if you imagine that you, that if you think of a say a double bass um, stringed instrument, that's got tension throughout it because uh, the wooden part, the strings, they all all go through, and the strings at the top spiral around those sort of keys which you change which you change the tension mm -hmm. with. Mm. But for me, my understanding of how the body works is that the body is like that. And you've got this um, like a tension going up into the spiral of the brain here. Yeah. So we know with the stringed instrument that it's not all just those, those, that tight coil there, which is important, but the whole lot of it is. It's, it's the whole thing. It's not the brain no. by itself. It's, it's the whole thing. It's all tensioned throughout. And where does that tension come from? It tensions comes from your posture and your breathing and attention to that. So the yogis, the people who are thinking about consciousness, they, they say, let's do some meditation. Let's think about sort of sitting in a nice sort of straight alignment and working on our, on our breathing, on our and, and thinking. And, and um, so there's, there is, so for me, tension and consciousness are very tightly connected. As soon as you start cutting that, so for example, if you start drinking alcohol, your breathing goes out the window and you wake up the next morning and you go, oh, I can't remember what happened because you, you don't have that tension anymore. There'll yeah. be sort of different chemical explanations. Oh, why did that happen? But really, when you, when you cut the tension, then um, the... Uh, yeah, the, the, the tension in the brain, the consciousness mm. go. So if if um, as soon as you as soon as you don't have tension in the body, then like at night, for example, complete a different state of consciousness. Your breathing just sort of changes. You it have does. a different yeah, yeah, completely. And then you dream, and you're in other realms. <laughs> yes, and one thing about dreaming and other realms is there is. A role where I think the um, where breathing, where dreaming has a particular function to play, mm -hmm. where just say tension in the body is important, just say tension in the and it goes up into the brain, then at night when you power down, getting that sort of alignment back uh, and and processing things is important. So you have dreams. 
And at that dream point, your muscles are so you the, the muscles that, are, that would make you run out of the room. Normally they're sort of they're switched off. So you've only got the you can't do anything for it. But you do have your breathing is still going. So if your body and says, okay, we need to tension up this bit, or we need to sort of straighten this out to sort of be ready for tomorrow. How are we going to how are we going to get Anders to do that? Well, oh, we'll come up with some scenario. Anders doesn't like exams. His dream is going to be he's back at school. He's just found out he's got an exam in 15 minutes. <laughs> His breathing goes nuts. And like that's a way of getting Anders breathing to tension and posture and pull things in the right way. Mm-hmm. And your body has done that for a particular reason. It's not just, you know, Anders had a terrible teacher and it just sort of keeps coming back to him. It's, oh no, if we tap into this thought about exams or whatever winds you up, it will get that emotion and that breathing going. Your arms aren't going to move. You're not going to, uh, but it it will do what your body needs to do for Mm. the, and so your breathing will be quite strange. Very very interesting. Is it a new take on on the the meaning of dreams and and sleeping and and all that? And it's not to say that there aren't other things to no, do no, because as well. I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm fascinated by these topics and I talk to a lot of people who have many, I mean, spiritually uh, inclined uh, explanations to, to, to what is happening and, and all that. And, and I, you know, many people talk about, it was interesting when you spoke about these uh, instruments with the uh, chords and, and the keys on top and all that, because it's many, many people in this context to say that it's about resonance. It's all about tension resonance. and yes, tension and, and, tension and resonance are very related. Things. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And um, so, for uh, the by, by the way, when you're dreaming, do you know what happens to your eyes? No. Yeah. Well, you have the REM, the rapid eye movement. Uh, yeah. The- so if you if your breathing's going nuts and your eyes are going nuts, that's again pressure uh, in the back of the eyeballs, ah, and sort of that okay. connect, connection okay. between yeah. your your breathing is going crazy and your eyes are sort of doing doing the same sort of thing. But um, with the point about the tension. There's a chap called Tesla, who was quite an interesting <laughs> oh, <who's> guy. <laughs> he mentioned him in the last episode. Yeah. He he said that the important things are um, one of the one of the sort of three important things was um, frequency. Mm. He said, yeah, frequency, understanding frequency, which goes to and you're you're saying some people you've 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 been speaking to who thought a lot about these things and have a lot of understanding, they talk about vibration and um and that that tension if we are ten if it is just tension if we're not just a column of things we're actually this uh more more like this yeah yeah high strength then, then tension can be uh if you put two of these things together then the tension will sort of be shared by them and it can be affected by the outside um but uh the Anyway, I was, I was going to make a different point, which is... Uh... Okay, you lost the train. <laughs> anyway, never mind. We, I mean, there's so much to say about these things. Oh, oh maybe, yes, maybe... It, it was Tesla. It was Tesla. Tesla was, said... Tesla said... Said frequency. Yeah. And the flip side of that is tension. Mm. Because if you've got a rope and it's tight, the tension will be... The, the tension is different, then the frequency will be different. So a flip side of the coin of Tesla saying, well, uh, frequency is important. The tension that you're holding yourself at, which is posture, breathing, doing the right thing, 
thinking uh, and the alignment that is changing your own tension, which is changing your own frequency in mm. the same way that having a loose thing has a different frequency to having something that's tight. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> new insights and new views on things, but it's, it all, it all ties uh, together actually. So can you, can you take, explain the, 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 the causes of cancer in two minutes, you think, you think, or three? <laughs> I can, but I'll get, I'll get, um, or maybe four. <laughs> well, we could blow it out to another podcast. We could. People coming back. Yeah. Because, yeah. um, I've, Does it also have to do with tension and breathing? Yeah, in a nutshell. That's Sorry, true. yes, that's that's a spoiler alert, but but spoiler yes, alert, but it has yeah, uh-huh. there's a golden thread all through the yes, and a tension thread, a tensioned golden thread, tension golden that. thread. Yes. Okay, so yeah. maybe we but, should dive too deeply into that. Do you, can you say anything about it? No, um, in in that, um, if if you. Uh, that um, that everyone's trying to do the right thing. Let's let's put it that way. But if you look into um, say uh, say the causes of oh, I'm, I'm I'm really struggling with this because this is this the is body big. heat with the credibility builder. The eyes stuff. Okay, there's a huge industry that doesn't necessarily want to embrace it, but. Um, I've got to put it out there. Cancer is what set the world is what's going to set the world on fire and have me public enemy number one. But yeah. but no you've got to take that, that responsibility. And if if I'm wrong, great, shut me down. There's there's a lot of um, people who've suggested a lot of things about cancer. But I know. Um, um, yeah, and uh, so uh, it, with cancer though, for for example. Uh, a relative of mine flew over from Australia. And the first thing I, I said, because he had cancer, I said, the, f- the first thing I said, well, look, I'm actually, I'm writing a book about cancer. And um, he said, great, but I don't think you can know anything more than the best cancer specialists in Melbourne can can tell me. So thanks, but no. Mm. And, and another relative, I, when I was talking to him about eyes, um, he asked me, uh, do I believe in something that was obviously crazy, but he was saying, and I thought, yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah, small. Uh, so um, there, there will be a lot of resistance um, and uh, it's walking into a hail of gunfire, but um, courage is correct. It is contagious, hopefully. And uh, it, it's one of those things I've got to get out of, out of my head yeah. on, on, onto the page. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it, again, it's a, it's a, it's a paradigm shift, like with the, yeah, yeah. Um, chemistry we can, we can do another podcast about, about the cancer thing when you feel more comfortable about that. And when this book, the body heat fiasco has, has hit the, you know, the, the, the ceiling, when, when it gets to the 7 million mark, the 7 million sales. mark, then we can, yeah. So in about a month or, or, or two or so. Yeah, 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 three or four weeks. So if I understand it correctly, you are you are planning to write a book, a series of books, where this is the first one, and and there is a golden tension thread. Yes, <laughs> all through yeah. them, and and the next one is going to be about vision. Is that correct? That's right. That's yeah. right. And then, yes. then you have the consciousness thing and the cancer thing, and they will all. Yeah, I think. Unfold. 
consciousness lends itself to sort of very being very woolly and not getting anywhere. So I think I'll have to probably write about cancer, cancer first. You write essays or things like that? I mean, it's uh, yeah, of, good, good, good question. Um, I, uh, where, where can people find out more of your about your work uh, if they want to know more after having listened to this fascinating podcast episode? Yeah, good question. I I have I've I've set up a Twitter account in in the back of the book. There is some um, uh, I've directed readers towards um, uh, websites that aren't um, yeah. they don't have they don't have a sufficient amount of content at the moment zero zero content. So. Um, I I am not readily. Um, uh, it's it's not easy to um, find things that I've that I've written or read, but that's that that is a work in progress. That's what I need to do. It's yeah. it's more. Um, um, should, and I hope you have a website or something. I mean, you don't have to be very active on it, but as long as you have one, you can you can get in touch with people, and people can get in touch with you that way. Yeah, it, exactly. For example, I'm not a regular visitor to Twitter, but I did. Uh, suggest that um, if the uh, if people would like to follow the action, they could um, they could go to at Paul J Scanlon on Twitter at Paul J Scanlon. Okay, I'll make Paul some J. occasional Scanlon. announcements, but um, and then yeah. of course they can always go to Amazon or, or wherever they you, they want to buy their books. Uh, they usually buy their books and find this the Body Heat fiasco. Yeah, and as I've so appreciated speaking with you today about this and I've uh, let myself down there on the websites and so on, but uh, it, it's great having an open-minded discussion. It's my pleasure, Paul. Thank you so much for being here and, and good luck fixing science and changing paradigms. Good on you, Anders. Thank you very much for everything that you do. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.